For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome back to the All-American Brit Podcast of the Believe Podcasting Network. I am your host, Johnny McEwen. We are here in January, the first month of 2021, and January brings lots of traditions and rituals whether it's breaking in that new calendar, making plans for the year ahead, or trying to keep your long list of resolutions through the first month of January. And for sports fans, it's a new year and a new opportunity for their teams to claim a championship season. The focus here in the States is on the NFL playoffs. The NBA season is now in full swing. But in the UK, this time of year, the focus is squarely on Premier League football. And that is what the subject for today's show is. I got to have a chat with my friend Wilfred Lawrence. Wilf is a contributing writer for the online publications Fansided and The Pride of London. He's a fellow Chelsea FC fan and incredibly well-versed in the world of football. So it's all things English football here on the All-American Brit Podcast. I hope you enjoy my chat. Here is Wilfred Lawrence. Wilf, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Um, and having a chat. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. So my question is, when did you first fall in love with football? When did I first fall in love? I I think I remember as a young kid, I wasn't a massive fan. And so I was I was I was brought into the sport by particular players really. Um, and so that, that, and it was the era of like Zola at Chelsea, late Zola at Chelsea. And it was Zola and Gus Boyet who really kind of captured, who showed me something in football that I don't think I'd really seen before. Um, I think before it was just kind of people kicking it around and, and then people watching and getting excited by it. And I didn't really understand that excitement. And then those kind of players with their very unique skills kind of brought me brought me that love of the game um and I didn't go to a live game for a long time so it was just watching those players um that brought me that excitement I think you know if you're a young kid and you go to a game and all the all the, all the excitement around a game that's not just the game in a, in a stadium I think that's a massive factor in a lot of people's love and I didn't have that for a long time and so I had to kind of find something else and so that was my route in in a way and then I went. I remember the first live game I went to was this this nil nil, Wickham Scunthorpe, you know, real proper, proper attritional stuff. Um, and so that that was a kind of strange introduction to live football, but almost like made you appreciate everything else, um, and the and the differences in football and you know differences down the leagues as you go. And I know you've become a Chelsea fan. How do you, how did you become a Chelsea fan and and. What, what what was your route into Chelsea in a way? Yeah, so yeah, my dad was a is a big Manchester United fan, and then all my all my mum's family were Chelsea fans, and so there was this kind of big battle between the two. I remember watching. I don't remember watching very like 
you know, modern day United games. I remember watching a lot of like the old, the glory days. I remember he had a tape of the like the European Cup against Eusebio with, with George Best. And I remember watching that game a lot and kind of loving the game, but not loving United. So I wasn't convinced by that. And then at the same time, I was getting pitched by, you know, my mum's family with all the Chelsea stuff. And then, as I said, the Zola Poyet stuff really came into play. And then I remember wanting to get a Gus Poyet shirt when he left for Spurs. I was like, oh, I really like this guy and I still like him. I should get a Spurs shirt because that's where he is now. And the, the, you know, being sat down and told, no, this is not how it works. You've got to choose. <laughs> that, that, was, that was when I was like, okay, I'm a Chelsea fan now. I, I think I was like, okay, I understand. I get it. That, that makes sense. Um, and then I've obviously been a Chelsea fan ever since. And then as I got older... I got to go a lot more with friends who had season tickets um, and then a bit professionally as well. Um, and so I got that later on, the kind of Stamford Bridge introduction. And and that, yeah. So when I say Chelsea greats, who were the first people to pop into your mind? Not like as far as what the club would define as those, but for you personally, who are your like ultimate Chelsea players? I know you say Zola and Poyet, but do any immediately jump to mind when I say Chelsea greats? I think aside from the obvious kind of Lampard, Drogba, that, you know, Terry era. I think my favourite player for a long time was Michael Essien. Oh, that's um, me too. I loved Michael yeah, Essien. Loved Michael Essien because he, he had something, you know, I, we had obviously Makaleli and that was, he was such an incredible player, but I think hard to appreciate when you're younger, maybe. I don't know, like the nuances of his game. Whereas Essien, you could just see, you know, it was all there and it was all his his kind of determination and that the combination of that determination and power with like such finesse and such like God, he could hit a ball, but in a way with such like effort, effortless, it was such an effortless way that he, he struck a football. That was amazing. And he was just so fun and so fun to have in your team. Mm. And, and I'd imagine such a nightmare to play against. Mm. Um, in the last episode of my podcast, I talked about some of the biggest characters in sports, some of the people with biggest personalities. I talked about Manny Ramirez, who's this baseball player who was kind of a very effervescent personality. Um, and my football highlight was Mourinho. And I, I think I find him effortlessly funny in the kind of seriousness of which he takes things. And I think his press conferences are kind of must watch. Um, yeah. But all of these players now have have so much media training. They're there, you know, there's kind of with social media, there's more exposure, more personal exposure, but it's all quite curated. And so some of that has kind of gone away. Some of the kind of like when you think of it, when I think of in American sport, I think of, you know, Babe Ruth being a larger than life character and wandering around being drunk and hung over at baseball games and all that kind of stuff. And I think that, that some of that existed in old football. But when I ask you the question, who do you think? I mean, I, I chose Mourinho to highlight in the football world. But do you think that there are some big characters in the footballing world now or ones have passed? Like, who do you think of when you think huge personality in football? I think when you mention Mourinho, it's hard to look past him for that initial moment. You're just got, you know, he, and he is, he's box office Mourinho for me. It's like, and it's funny. I think, you know, he has that seriousness with which he takes the game, but I also always think he's slightly more self-aware maybe than people think he is. Hmm. I think he knows exactly what he's doing most of the time. And he, and he, I think he is in it for that entertainment factor as much as it is for any kind of like siege mentality for his own team. As for kind of current, Current, I, I think Diego Costa springs to mind from a Chelsea point of view, and he's an interesting one because I felt like, felt like I really got to know him as a Chelsea fan. 
mm. even though he never spoke a word of English. You know what I mean? Like that, and <laughs> yes, that, and I think that point. that was a testament to his character in terms of like both on the pitch and off it. He was kind of straight, and maybe when I say I got to know him, I don't think I ever really truly know, but I was always fascinated by him. Mm. Um, and I think his kind of antics, but also his clear, his clear grit and a, a way of a way of playing that was dying is a dying breed, um, and it was dying when he was in his pomp, and yet he still he was so so. I, I remember like. Every one of my friends who was not a Chelsea fan was so annoyed by him and so kind of like focused, but also couldn't really take their eyes off him and just were terrified of what he was going to do next and all this thing, but would kind of like berate him and be like, oh, he's not even that good. He's not even that good technically, all this kind of stuff. And and yet there was always a yet. <laughs> oh, he's not even that good though, but then he scores goals and he's a yeah, dominant figure. Exactly. Yeah, and he might yeah. be coming back to the Premier League, won't he? Yeah, I, got, I, I mean, I think he is kind of past it now, but it would be kind of fun, wouldn't it, to see what he could do. I, I mean, for West I Ham or something. Was, yeah, I was going to say West Brom, but like, I guess West <laughs> Ham's more likely. Um, yeah, especially now Haller's gone. That would be interesting if he was at West Ham. Him and, or, or at Newcastle, just him and Andy Carroll. Just him and Andy Carroll would be a fabulous one too on top. <laughs> I think there have been rumours about him going to West Ham and uh, Wolves as well. He might be mm. a good fit at Wolves. Yeah, very, very different player for Wolves, but interesting, yeah. There are tons of examples of this, of, of, of this in, in the last 10 years taking out a manager in the middle of a season. And I think sometimes it, it's necessary in the way of, look, we're facing relegation. We need to shift the mentality of this team. You've been here a while, whatever else. Do you think that there are immediate, you know, kind of stories that you can point to where you go, well, yeah, this, this manager just had to be sacked. It was a kind of awful environment. Or do you think that it is to appease a certain amount of the fan base and to kind of just try and start something fresh? Do you think that, the the culture of sacking managers and, and managers jobs being questioned within the span of only you know a year two years is is something that's worthwhile is it or is it something that's really just based on business i think i think it's i think obviously it varies case by case i think it's based on business but also based on culture and, and like fandom and media right like that the joint pressures of social media and the media coming together to form and then, you know, it's the, the people who are like, well, this is an untenable situation. And it's like, okay, even if it wasn't untenable, it is now kind of thing. You know, we've said it's untenable, so it's untenable. Um, I think there are instances, look, you know, if you look at Mourinho at United, he, you know, it was pretty clear to see that he had to go. It was either him or Pogba had to go. And, and he went and Pogba's still there. And now, you know, not sure. I, I suppose it's worked out for them in a way. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, it's interesting asking a Chelsea fan this because we're so used to it that it's almost become, and I, I think it has affected us. I think um, the mentality of the squad now, whenever we're down, there is that like downing tools accusation. Um, and even if they're not downing tools, it becomes this like, almost like 
almost muscle memory thing in a way. Like, oh, you know, five games on the bounce, we haven't got a result that you got all the pressures from the media and it's like, oh, here we are again kind of thing. So the the safety net of a manager, it's the manager's fault. A manager goes, we'll get another bounce. Is is it, it must be, it must play on your mind when you're a player, especially at a club like that. I also think at the bottom, it's really interesting. You look at Slavin Bilic leaving West Brom after that, you know, draw with City. Um, you look at, you know, Graham Potter's been under a bit of pressure this term, you know, all that. You know, all these, and then Sam Allardyce comes in and then it's like he loses, you know, those those second and third games and it's suddenly like, oh, could he? will he still be there at the end of the season? And so, that, I mean, I suppose it is, on the one hand, you can understand it if if you are in a relegation battle, and especially if you don't have the finances to compete in the championship necessarily, um, and you're like this, it's kind of all or nothing. Then I understand it, but I think a lot of time we don't give enough time to these managers, and we don't give enough time for for their particular style of plays to to really ferment. You know, especially I'm thinking Sarri at Chelsea. Um, you know, that to think that he would be able to get a Chelsea team in the mould of that Napoli side within, you know, eight months is insane. That was never going to happen. And it didn't happen at Napoli. So I don't know why they thought he'd be able to do it that, you know. But then the pressure comes and it, it was almost inevitable that he left. Um, so I think it's interesting. I think it's hard to say whether it, what the like aggregate is of it working out and not but I do think it does become a bit ridiculous, especially when clubs seem so predicated on philosophies now. And it's like, right, we're sticking to this. And it's like, okay, you've put all your money into that. Why don't you actually wait to see if it works or not? Instead of like blinking the first time things don't quite go right. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, if Arteta had gone um, in that period where they were losing, you know, constantly, it would have, you know, you would have been like, right, where now? Do we go back to another defense? You know, you, you, I think there, there's such short-termism that it can, and it can really affect you in the wrong hands if you if you change too soon. I think of Sari and I think of that moment when he tried to get Kepa to come out because they knew they were going to a penalty shootout. And I don't think I've ever seen such obvious and clear defiance of a player of a manager. And I think yeah. I think when I watched that, I was like, well, now he, he cannot stick around. <laughs> you know, that, yeah, Jesus. that was such an odd moment. That was insane. I was actually, I was at that game. Were you really? Um, I was. And I just remember, I didn't really, in the stadium, and I was kind of in the opposite corner, you didn't really know what was going on. And I was like, oh, okay, is it a stoppage of play? Like, is someone down? You're like looking across. And then you kind of finally see the, these two figures, like two dots just in the distance, just screaming at each other. It, it was so bizarre. And, you know, the fa- I think I remember the fans, you know, whistled like eventually. But there was just like this moment of kind of like incredulous, like silence, literally just like, what is this? <laughs> this, oh, is, this doesn't happen. Um, I think that the Premier League and this debate finds itself at a really interesting moment in Premier League right now, because there are three players almost of similar generations with Lampard, Arteta and Solskjaer, who are all, you know, having their jobs kind of questioned. I think the the big question is, you know, not necessarily... Are they going to be sacked or not? The time will kind of play that out and each club's going to take the decision it's going to take based on results. It's obviously going to be results driven. But ultimately, do you think that all all three of these managers faced the same problem, which was that they were given the reins of these 
you know, powerhouse clubs too soon. I think, you know, you can make an argument for Arteta that his time at Man City and working with Pep Guardiola prepared him for an opportunity like this. And it's been partly him and partly the team that, you know, Arsenal had this really tough run in the beginning. I think, you know, Solskjaer came in after Mourinho left and there was this kind of, oh, the relief. We, all these players can just play how they want. And, and you know, Lampard's being held on to in a way because he's considered a Chelsea great. They're, they're all kind of, you can connect them in their, they all have their own, what am I trying to say? They, they, they all have their own you know specific case by case things but do you think that they all ultimately face the same problem which is they were handed they were handed the the the, te- the the keys to the kingdom too early yeah i do and i think i think it's it's interesting because i think it's the pep guardiola effect right the club legend coming through and being this generational tactician and also the zidane effect the kind of like so you have the like on the one hand guardiola like maniacal tactician you know like all of those stories of him you know just being insane and creating this incredible team through a very specific style of play and then you have the Zidane effect again a club legend again incredible footballer but a very different approach a very you know don't want to say hands up you know it's hard to say how much but it's not the same ethos is it it's much more of a kind of controlling the egos in the dressing room and letting incredible players play incredible football rather than dictating it to them and so because that model's proved so successful at those two clubs it, it, and, and it's, it's a fan, you know, it's an easy way of getting fans on side, right? Um, especially at United, it's like there's so much of the United way. And, and there was that period uh, in like Solskjaer's reign in his first six months where he w- it would become a bit that he would bring up like the class of 92 so much and like training and all these players and, you know, oh, 1999, you know, everything of that. But it like, it, it, that was such a, you know, if you've got that ace in your deck, you will play it because why not? And so I think I can see why they've made those decisions, uh, the clubs. And, and if you're the manager, you're not going to turn it down, are you? Even though in the back of your head, you will know it's like, okay, I may be taking this too early yeah. and I could crash and burn and then How all this stuff. No? From How do you yeah. say no? Yeah. But you can't say no. Um, and so I think that's, I, and I think it, it does put the club in a difficult position because you've then said, okay, well, you've put all this, capital on this one project this one this one ex-player do do you see that through to the bitter you know do you see it through to the bitter end or do you cut ties and be like actually okay that was too early for him you know maybe next time let's get an and you know i don't want to say an actual manager but maybe an actual manager you know um because arteta regardless of his guardiola you know apprentice he'd never been a manager before literally no you know an assistant is a very different thing to a manager um, and equally for Lampard, guiding Derby from sixth to sixth is a very different thing than taking Chelsea to Champions League, you know, knockout stage games and all, all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it would be interesting to see if they're all still in a job come the end of the season and, and what that means and where they are. Um, I think that's very interesting. And I think if they're not, you're then looking at, you know, coaches like Pochettino who were available for like a year and are now at Paris Saint-Germain and thinking, okay, did you, did you ignore him? Mm, you know, did you cut long. off your face despite your notes? You yeah. Know, whatever. Yeah. So now having identified the problem, I'm now going to be the problem and say, when does Steven Gerrard become Liverpool's manager? <laughs> yeah. It's funny. It's funny. You kind of, I think, especially if you're a non-Liverpool fan and you're like struggling at your own team, and you see this kind of, okay, yeah, they've been stuttering recently, but this generally considered all-conquering side. 
and then and you see the kind of general level of Liverpool fans on Twitter, you know, especially when they want to leave, you're like, oh my god, you know, this that that breed of fan is like, you know, it's you can't see it anywhere else. It's like it truly is a thing to behold. But then I remember I was chatting with like a vague Liverpool friend of mine recently. And he was having this massive go at Klopp. And I was like, whoa, where is this coming from? <laughs> you know, bring Stevie in. I don't think he said bring Stevie <laughs> in, but you could tell he really wanted to. And I was like, oh, Jesus, like football fans really are all the same. You know, it's really like from the outside, you're like Liverpool is the perfect situation. And they've had like a boatload of injuries. And mm. that is why they're losing. But like as soon as you as soon as you lose that momentum, people really do panic. Um, and clearly boardrooms do, too. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I don't think Gerard should, you know, be there at the end of the season, not the end of the next. But it does seem like he's he's headed there eventually, right? Football has a funny way of making you feel older than you actually are sometimes and then younger than you actually are. Like, I, I'll be like, God, Cesar Aspilicueta's been around forever. He's two years older than me. Um, you know, like uh, the, the kind of the moment when you realize that, like, you're following a footballer who's like five years younger than you and it's a bit embarrassing but ultimately when when frank lampard took the job i was like cool frank lampard's a manager now am i really that old no it's just that he, he just took it too early you know yeah, like, yeah. you know and i think that he, he should have spent more time either at derby or somewhere else or you know but it's, it's like you said earlier when, when you get that opportunity simply you can't say no can you no you can't say no and then you're always gonna get you get it from both sides you get the people you have your friends in the media who back you to like the point of where it becomes a joke. Right. Um, which then w- works against you. It works for you and then it works against you. And then you have the people who are irritated you've been given that chance. And yeah. so are going to like be negative towards you from the off. And so you, you can almost never win unless you win. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Frank yeah. Lampard's Frank Lampard's like results and statistics make him to be the, the worst Chelsea manager in, you know, a really, really long time. And the pundits would be going bonkers if he was some name bloke named alex lampard you know what i mean but they're yeah, yeah. you know they, they have been favorable to him and it's, yeah and 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 I, I do want to ask you about chelsea the the huge acquisitions of Havertz and, and Werner and in the summer and and this is a team that finished fourth in last year in the premier league table and now we're, we're struggling to think that we'll get back to that point does what you know having followed the team do you put that on the performance of the players do you put that on lampard's shoulders or is it a combination for you I think it's a big combination. I think, I think a lot of, I think there is an issue with Lampard in terms of getting all the, you know, I think it's difficult for any manager to gel all that amount of players, especially considering they're all kind of around the same position to get a kind of general starting 11 that you can use moving forward is difficult, even more so for a manager, an inexperienced manager. And then I think, and so I think tactically, a lot of the players like Werner who are used to, you know, who have worked with managers like Ralph Ragnick, like some of the best, like real, like, you know, older German statesmen um, and young coaches to, you know, literally look in a short time, work with incredible coaches doing very specific things to now kind of be in a system that does look lost. It's unsurprising that he looks lost. But then again, if you're Lampard, you can't really litigate for Werner going through one of the worst period, you know, this incredible striker, everyone thought, you know, Liverpool were trying to get him. No one denies that he's very good going through the worst period of his career so far. And you can't litigate for Kai Havertz getting COVID at 21, having just moved to London. And then, you know, I think he's still clearly affected by it, which is very understandable. And so you can't, on the one hand, you can litigate for 
a general feeling of the team looking lost when they're on the field, but also you can't control those 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 outside things. And I think it, but it is an interesting question as to whether would they have. I think it, that the kind of ZX signing, and I think ZX been pretty good on the whole, but injured, you know, has also been injured. But the ZX signing and then the Havertz signing in that space of time does speak to, and I understand why they did it because, you know, a player like Havertz, I genuinely believe like the chances of us signing him at any other period other than that summer was, you know, I think in any other summer with Barcelona and Real Madrid in in, in financial situation, they would have, he would have gone to a bigger club. Um, But he didn't and we were able to get him. So we did. And I think that, I still think that will pay off. But it does make previous transfers like the Ziyech one a bit confused, right? It's like, okay, well, we've got two players who kind of play in and around the same position. And sure, yeah, we lost William, but it, it, it does speak to a kind of like, okay, what's your best 11 now? And filling, filling gaps where there might not be up top and then leaving them in the midfield and the defence um, and trusting Thiago Silva as great as he has been to be able to, you know, put literally do all that work for all those players at the back who, yeah. you know, all the others seem, seem I suppose, you know, it's been great to see Rhys James come through and I think Ben Chilwell's been pretty good as well. But there are still, that I think particularly in midfield, it's like, God, we could do with one more good midfielder. Mm. Um, and, that, and that wasn't addressed. Uh, so mm. I think there was some, there was some mistakes made there. Uh, even though, it's always going to take time for those players to come, and and this is a it's an unprecedented global situation, let alone for Chelsea. You know, so you can't you can't litigate for that. Do you think if if Chelsea were any other kind of club that they would have put way more stock in the likes of Billy Gilmore and Callum Hudson Odoi? I think specifically Hudson Odoi, yeah. You know, that turning down that you know forty million bid from Bayern. If you, I remember being like really wanting to keep him and being really excited. And it was this, and it was like, oh my God, we're going to let Jaden Sancho 2.0 go to Bayern and he's going to be, he's going to win the Champions League in mm. six months and it's going to be horrendous. And then we kept him and it was like, oh my God, okay, strap in for Hudson Adoy. And he's like, feels like he's barely played since yeah, then. They don't play him. <laughs> like, literally feels like he's barely played. Um, and I know he got injured, but it, it, it's still, even with that, was not. He wasn't injured for that whole time, and yet it, it feels like he's only just coming back to that kind of form in a way, and he, and he's doing it from the bench. Um, so I think yeah, Hudson Odoi would be starting for for a lot of other teams, and and that and that's you know and that's the part of the issue of getting both Ziyech and Havertz in a team that already has a Hudson Odoi and has Pulisic, yeah. yeah, literally, yeah, um, so, four four guys that for most teams would be starting. Yeah, and then you, and then on top of that, so you've got all those like wingers essentially, and on top of that, you're playing your summer striker signing on the wing. Yeah, pushing a yeah, you know it that, and so that is that is Lampard, and you can't really look beyond that. At risk of sounding like a loser, I really hope they commit to this team because I I love the way that they play on FIFA 21, and I've got team <laughs> I've got Timo as as striker and I sit both Tammy and, and Giroud I think any other club Giroud's starting I think that Giroud's going to look to want to get moved because of that and I've got Hadoy uh, starting on, um, Callum hudson Hadoy starting on the right over Ziyech and I bring Ziyech in as like a super sub now, now I'm being really boring because I'm actually talking about my FIFA tactics 
but I think that you know. Well, I think what about your fancy team? <laughs> <laughs> I think that yeah, I think that Hudson Odoi is. is I, I'm I'm so glad we kept him as well. I remember that moment when it was was possible that we would lose him, and I thought that it would be an absolute loss. But there's not been any sizable commitment made to him because it's simply not possible because of spots. So so can I ask you, as your FIFA manager, is your so <laughs> when you've got Hudson Odoi and Werner. And then you bring on Ziyech. Do you also bring on Giroud for, for Ziyech's like, inimitable crossing? Is that the now, plan? Now, now we're getting into it. This is what I want to get into. I switch the tactics so I make it more... When I go more attacking, I put, uh, Werner actually then go, moves to the left, which brings Pulisic into the centre spot, and then I take Pulisic out and put in Giroud yeah. if I'm feeling like it. Or I, I put in Tammy, because I, I quite like the way Tammy Abraham plays. I think that, you know, I, I, I think he's a good striker. Yeah. That's but interesting. Is, I hope is. Lampard was listening to that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like I like Abraham, but I also I think he's one of those players where when you see him start, I feel like you can see within the first fifteen minutes whether he's going to have a good game or not. You're and so if he's great. on song and he's pressing, it's like oh okay, and he can get in behind. It's like great, great. We're, you know, this can be a good game. And if he's not, and if he's a bit off the pace, and then balls are coming into the box, and he's kind of like jumping in this really awkward style and it's just not getting anywhere near the ball it's just like oh it's just not your day he's one of those players for me um and so when he's not playing well it's a real it's, it's a real tough. struggle to yeah, watch you're yeah. right about the first 15 minutes too you just go oh no we gotta, we gotta get him out of that um yeah it's fun to talk chelsea with you but moving away from chelsea when you look at the rest of the league what do you think are the most interesting stories from the this kind of first part of the season what what teams fascinate you the most i think I think Liverpool have interested me because they have interested me. And what I mean by that is that I thought they were going to be really boringly good, like they were last season. And they've actually been wildly kind of inconsistent, you know, going from losing 7-2, then winning 7-0. That, that's been that's been very interesting. That's been a, a nice surprise. Um, I think, you know, I think Spurs are interesting because the, even though I'm so conditioned to hate Spurs... I can't take my eyes off Mourinho and I can't take my Same. eyes off that kind of... The Son Kane like duo is incredible to watch. Mm. Um, and it's such Mourinho. It's like, I remember when he first joined Spurs and there was a big like Deli Alley, like, oh, it's going to really rejuvenate Deli Alley. And we really didn't take into account, I guess because maybe because we already kind of considered Son and Kane such great players, but how perfect they would be for that counter-attacking Mourinho style. I don't think that was spoken about a lot. And that, I mean, they are perfect for that. They're the two, you wouldn't want any two other players on the planet for that system. Um, so I think that's been quite begrudgingly exciting. And then City, City coming through now and suddenly having looked pretty shaky, suddenly looking like the best team in England again. I think that's, that's vaguely interesting. Um, and I think City, it's funny, think of all the players they've got i don't think they've been that fun to watch for two years mm. and that seems kind of strange to yeah. say but i think that is true yeah. yeah um even in that incredible title winning season they didn't they it wasn't the same as those early kind of david Silva, yaya torre mm. aguero days yeah and then that's what i think southampton are obviously a really interesting side um and and clearly led by a, a, a really good coach you know they seem they may be the best coach team in the league, I would say, aside from Liverpool, maybe. Um, I think they're probably the best coach team. And I think you can really see that, uh, especially when they play against the big teams. Um, 
I think you can really see there's such a ham even if they don't get the points, there's such a handful. It's like it's such a they're they're different. They they differentiate themselves from sides of similar quality in those games, I think. Yeah. Um, prediction questions are never quite fun to answer in the moment, but they're always fun to look back on. So I'm going to ask you two of them. Who do you think finishes top four of the Premier League this year? And then do you have a Carabao Cup final prediction? Carabao Cup, blimey. Um, okay, top four. Uh, okay. Um, in, in order? Yeah, in order. Go on. In order. Okay. I'm going to go... So I've actually changed this recently. I'm going to go City top... Liverpool second, United third, and Chelsea fourth. I, I really, that's real oh, hot four. overhead. That. <laughs> yeah. How, when, where did it change? Um, you said it changed I think recently. I, I, I kind of always had a feeling Liverpool were going to win the league. But I think just City suddenly clicking into form against that like the Chelsea game was one thing and I thought they were incredible and we were awful but then the United game which I only watched the highlights of because you know there was other stuff going on but United weren't bad in that game and United have been like really annoyingly good you know recently just been finding ways to get games and just the ease with which City just kind of got you know it's like 2-0 win like job done I was like oh this is dangerous they look dangerous again um, and I think, you know, there is a there is a point where injuries become too much. And I think Liverpool, especially to the end, and I think especially with like the schedule in mind, um, like I do, I think it is it is almost cities to lose now um, after that Southampton loss. Yeah. Hmm. And the cup final? Oh, the cup final. God. Um, it's really hard, isn't it? Because on the one hand. I don't want Spurs to win a trophy because it's funny that they haven't won one in so long. On the other, City winning every League Cup ever is very boring. Um, and so I think ultimately I kind of want Mourinho to win. I think I still kind of want Mourinho to beat Guardiola. And I think I think they might actually. I think they might win it and it'll be a much bigger story than it should be in many ways because it's the Carabao Cup and no one cares about it until the semi-finals. <laughs> You're literally like, oh, these four teams are in the semi-final. Yeah. Great. That happens um, very quickly, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and it'll be this big thing and it'll be like Mourinho's back. On, and then I think they might have this big slump <laughs> after that. You know, just a big hangover for the rest of the season. Yeah. So that would be... Equally, though, I could see City winning 5-0. Yeah. yeah. Like, that really could happen. But then the more interesting question is, do you think it'll be an interesting game? Do you think it'll be a good game? No, not if Spurs win. No, I, I think it'll be like... <laughs> if my prediction comes true, it will not be an interesting game. It'll be an interesting game for the kind of... for the conversation around it and the Mourinho, like Guardiola stuff. I think that's still interesting. But in terms of the actual game, no. It'll be a lot of Kevin De Bruyne like holding his head in hands, being like, how did that not go in? I've hit the bar for like the sixth time today, kind of thing. This is just a random question off the top of my head, just because you said his name. Who do you think is the biggest loss? The bigger loss to Chelsea, is it Salah or De Bruyne? Oh, De Bruyne, mm. I think. I think De Bruyne. I think Salah... would have we... built around him for years. Yeah, Hazard wouldn't yeah. have gone anywhere. It would have been so different, wouldn't it? It would have been so different. And I think Salah... 
Salah needed the Roma in Liverpool that experience more than De Bruyne did I think mm. I think De Bruyne would have been great no matter what actually um, and and I think Salah we have those kind of players yeah. in a way whereas yeah. we've no one has a De Bruyne apart from City you know no one um, he's really hard to compare to even even throughout time I don't even know how to compare Kevin De Bruyne to players throughout time like he's he's really one of the greats in a way yeah I, yeah I agree I agree uh, I think Luka Modric kind of comes to mind but then again they're very mm. different because I think Luka Modric is is similarly like better in defence than you think he is which I think De Bruyne yeah. is yeah. That was he's my not thought, the yeah. same he doesn't have the same power like De Bruyne yes. has a real power and a real strength um, and so no I can't think of any players actually I know you focused a lot on club football and kind of work thinking about club football but I as a kid and in my first episode on this podcast I talk about just absolutely loving watching England in the World Cup and how like that was the pinnacle of my kind of sporting love I just absolutely adored watching England do you have any memories of watching international football do you do you hold them with any kind of esteem and and what what do you think the Euros are going to be like in the upcoming summer God yeah I think being in being here in England for that 2018 World Cup, and it, it was the first, I think it was my second month, I just started this um, this job at uh, 90 Min, this football website. And it was like, I think I joined in May and then we had the World Cup in June. And it was like, oh my, you know, like, like genuinely one of the best times of my life. Just, you know, that like working in the day, but it was kind of fun work. And then watching like a game in the like evening with your mates, like, and it was so sunny that summer. And we were so good. And it was the the air around London. It feels such a cliche, but it was so true. And I remember it wasn't just like you people who weren't interested in football would be like, God, this is such a big deal. And that felt that felt very different to me than other major tournaments. I think all other major tournaments I'd experienced, there was the obvious hype beforehand. Um, and I I went to the Euros in France in 2016. But as soon as that first game came and like the inevitable like disappointment. There wasn't any kind of interest, you know, it, like there was an interest, but it was almost like a masochistic interest. It was like, oh, we've got to do this because this is what we do. And then we'll we'll rail on someone and we'll have someone to blame and there'll be effigies and all this. Um, but that was such a different like the positivity from that was unbelievable um, until it wasn't obviously. But even that, like I would take all of that, you know, it was still an incredible time. Um, yeah. And I think you're right. Like when international football is good. It, it is the best thing. It, it is the it's the pinnacle of football fandom for me. Um, and so I think when you get all this kind of stuff on Twitter about people groaning about international breaks, it's like, okay, I get it. I I don't want to watch England nil, Bulgaria nil as much as you do. But I also, I will t- t- make this sacrifice to make the World Cup a thing that's worth watching instead of just teams you've never played, you know. Um, but yeah, God, the, 2018 was, was something else. Hmm. Um, and, and what do you think the, the Euros would be like this summer? I, I mean, I think it would be interesting to see if they go ahead um, for, for a start. Um, 
I think the fact that they're still holding on to this like globe trotting all across Europe extravaganza is a bit ridiculous. I think, and and people, it's like this elephant in the room. It's like, yes, we will still be playing across, you know, fifteen different countries. Why do you ask? <laughs> that, that seems very strange. Um, but and so it's almost so hard, you know, with all those things in mind, it's so hard to predict what can happen. I think we have a good shot. I think we may even have a better team than we did in 2018. But I think, I think other, um, for, like in 2018, you had all these kind of, these massive dynasty, you know, you had your Germany, Spain's, these institutional like national sides all coming to the end of a cycle. And so we were kind of fortunate in that way that there were these, it was a massive like changing of the tides. Um, and I think unfortunately, even though we, may be better that everyone around us has improved as well and so i think the 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 kind of mean level of teams like france portugal netherlands germany spain all those teams are so much better than they were two years ago um with the exception of maybe france but they were you know they were good enough to win it last time so i i think it might there's just too many good teams now um so i'm not even though I'm sure come, you know, big opening game, I'll be, you know, as expectant as the rest of us. For now, that, that is temporary expectations because I just think there are so many good, suddenly there are so many good national time, national sides in Europe. Um, and so what's going on with you? What have you got up going on? And I, I know you've got a podcast you've just launched. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's called South Dakota Loves Bonucci. Um, it is, it's a, a Chelsea fan an Arsenal fan and an AFC Wimbledon fan kind of chatting through, you know, the, the big games in the Premier League and then the kind of, you know, some lower league stuff and some, you know, asides. And then each week we'll also be launching an investigation into South Dakota's love of Leonardo Bonucci, um, which is based off, I think it was a soccer.com survey, which found that um, whereas, you know, most states in the US, it will be Messi, Ronaldo or Pulisic, who, who, who's the, their shirt is the most bought in South Dakota, in this this haven of Italian centre backs? It was Leonardo Bonucci, reigning supreme, um, and we just want to know why and how. Um, and and ideally, if we can get Bonucci to South Dakota as some kind of like state sponsored meeting, we'll, we'll have done all we can as a podcast. Um, so yeah, tune in to see if we can. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, mate. Cheers. Thank you. Again, I want to thank Will for joining the show. Do check out his work on the Pride of London and Fansided and be sure to keep an eye out for South Dakota Loves Bonucci. I think it's a fascinating topic. (laughs) I certainly hope that they get Bonucci to South Dakota. That would really just completely connect everything and and quite fitting that he got to talk about that here on the All-American Brit podcast. It's back to American sport next week. Join me next week where it's all baseball. My good friend and host of Meeting on the Mound, Jake Reiner, joins the show, so be sure to listen out for that. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. As always, I'm your host, Johnny McEwen, for the All-American Brit on Believe Podcasting Network. Take care. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts 
so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.